If you love great women of business, we think you'll also love Gastropod. It isn't a ParCast podcast, but it's a podcast about food, history, and science, hosted by two women who, like us, do obsessive research to find surprising stories behind the food we eat every day. Their recent episode on women, food, and power covered new science showing that our ancient lady ancestors were probably the ones bringing home the bacon. Find Gastropod and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coffee and Crayons is a back-to-school podcast coming soon from Target and Slate Studios. It isn't a ParCast podcast, but we really think you'll like it. Parents give their kids the support they need to thrive. But who's there to support the parents? Join host and parent Mallory Kasdan as she talks compassion, creativity, and inclusion with parenting influencers and everyday people. Subscribe now to Coffee and Crayons on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Getting a quality night's sleep can help you prevent burnout, make better decisions, and improve your memory. Lisa wants to be sure you get a quality night's sleep like I do. So they leveraged 30-plus years of experience with hundreds of hours of testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Don't miss these summer savings. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash women. Estee Lauder stood proudly behind a beauty salon counter, poised to sell the face creams she had toiled over and perfected in her kitchen. Personable and full of confidence, the young entrepreneur was a natural and eager saleswoman. Estee welcomed a new customer with her signature charm, complimenting the woman's beautiful blouse. What a lovely color, Estee said. Where did you get it? The woman scoffed. Not that it matters, it's not like you could ever afford it anyway. Estee was humiliated. Her face burned with rage and embarrassment. In a rare moment, she struggled to find her words. Her life's work, however, would speak for itself. This young woman was destined to become one of the most famous names in the beauty industry, known for her glamour and wealth. And by then, she could surely afford any blouse that pleased her. Welcome to Great Women of Business. I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. In this podcast, we don't just tell you about women who change the face of business. We tell you how they change the face of business. We'll spotlight business principles that you can use yourself and dive into the complex lives and unique challenges faced by female visionaries, icons, and leaders. New episodes of our 12-episode series will come out on Tuesdays, and you can find us on your favorite podcast directory. While you're there, we truly appreciate a five-star review. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Today we're spotlighting the glamorous life of Estee Lauder. She was extremely ambitious, personable, and loved to make women look beautiful. She believed that there were no homely women, just ones who'd not been given the right tools yet. Lauder worked to create beauty lines and perfumes that could make any woman feel beautiful and confident. Entirely self-made, she pioneered new marketing techniques that helped her business grow. But most importantly, 
Her persistence and her charm allowed her to build lasting relationships that were invaluable to her success. From her humble beginnings cooking up face creams in her Manhattan kitchen to heading an international multi-million dollar corporation, Estée is an inspiration. Her success is proof that passion, hard work and dedication can make any woman unstoppable. Beauty brands are all about image, not just the image they help their consumers achieve, but one that evokes luxury and glamour. Most people working in the beauty industry would agree presentation is everything. There might not be anyone who knew this better than Estée Lauder, the queen of glamour herself. Estée Lauder is a name that has become synonymous with high-end luxury and beauty, which was by no means an accident. Estée was always very image conscious and knew the benefit of proper packaging and presentation, especially her own. In order to help sell her luxurious beauty brands, she created a refined, classy image for herself. and she invented an extravagant myth surrounding her past. She once told a magazine interviewer that her mother was a pampered woman who traveled the spas of Europe. She also claimed that her father was close to Czechoslovakian royalty and that the family was driven around by chauffeurs. Her own son joked that for a while he didn't even know his own age because Estée frequently had a different answer when asked her age and would adjust her son's age to match. Estée Lauder's real story is mythic in a different way. She came into this world with nothing, and uh, she built that business with her own signal uh, brilliance as a merchant, uh, and her own incredible energy and knowledge of who it was she had to make herself be in order to make the uh, uh, the Estée Lauder name the colossus that it became. That was Estée's biographer, Lee Israel. To set the record straight, Estée was born Josephine Esther Menser on July 1st, 1908. Her parents, Max Menser and Rose Rosenthal, were Jewish immigrants from Hungary, living in Queens, New York when their first daughter was born. Rose wanted to name her daughter Esty after her favorite aunt, but a nurse convinced her to give her daughter a more American-sounding name. So Rose and Max went with Josephine Esther, but the family always called her Estée. As a child, Estée had big dreams of becoming a glamorous actress, and though that dream did not pan out, her performative nature would always come in handy. She adored fashion and loved to get done up and feel beautiful. She recalled fond memories of brushing her mother's long hair until it shined. She marveled at her mother's flawless complexion and became obsessed with skincare. In her autobiography, Estée wrote that she was often ashamed of her parents' heavy accents and their old country ways. She wrote, "Both were European in every straight-laced way, and I desperately wanted to be 100% American." Despite her youthful embarrassment over her family, Estée picked up her best business practices from her parents and other relatives. She developed an excellent work ethic wherein she learned the important business principles of dedication, determination, and discipline. She applied these principles later to her own business, which undoubtedly made her who she was, all thanks to the years she spent working in her father's hardware store. 
When her father Max came to America, he was working as a tailor, making custom clothing orders. But he found the work dissatisfying and decided to open a hardware store in Queens. The family lived above the hardware store, which was located across the street from a department store called Plafker and Rosenthal. Estee's sister-in-law Fanny Leppel ran the store with her sister Frida, so the department store was also part of the Menser family. As a young girl, she watched Fanny and Frida manage and operate their store all on their own. In many ways, these ladies helped show Estee that the sales industry was not just for men. These women were an inspiration to Estee, who learned early on that being a woman was no limitation. After school, Estee split her time between the hardware store and the department store, where she picked up a number of sales strategies and began developing her sharp business sensibilities. She watched as her sister-in-law built strong relationships with her customers. Fanny and Frida listened carefully to their customers, learning which products they preferred and always making sure they had them in stock. They offered store credit when their customers were facing hard times. They spoke to them in their native Yiddish language to make them feel more comfortable in the store. The sisters took great care in offering the easiest and most welcoming shopping experience possible. Estee marveled at the results. It became clear to her that it was much easier to sell something to someone you had a personal connection with. These interactions showed her that small personal touches really made a big difference to customers. And so one of her primary business principles was born, a focus on the customer experience. Estee believed that a network of strong relationships was the foundation to any successful business endeavor. Estee valued her connections and believed relationships could be mutually beneficial to both parties. She became a master at networking throughout her career. This business principle would later come to be the key cornerstone of Estee Lauder's success as a beauty industry mogul. She didn't just learn an interpersonal approach to sales from Fanny and Frida. Estee also learned about product displays and design sensibilities, figuring out the best ways to present merchandise in order to pique a shopper's interest. This strategy, called merchandising, is most commonly seen in retail stores. It's a way of making a product look most attractive to buyers using specially designed presentation strategies. Here's the CEO of Office Depot discussing their changes in merchandising and store design. By making it more shoppable, and we call it intuitive, where we put adjacencies, products that go with each other, in a in an easier space to identify, we think the average ticket will go up. If the average ticket goes up, then sales go up. Office Depot isn't the only company that has utilized new designs to improve sales. In 2015, Fendi, an Italian luxury fashion company, found a notable new hook. They designed displays inspired by claw crane vending machines in classic arcades. The design was for their shop in Harrods, a high-end department store located in London. The presentation showed gold claws lifting handbags out of arcade kiosks in a playful mix of fashion and conceptual art. The stunt was memorable and made the brand stand out to consumers. Estee quickly learned the value of design when it came to merchandising. 
only 16 at the time, she took the skill back to her father's hardware store and spent hours helping him arrange his products in the store windows in ways they hoped would draw new and returning customers into the store. Her sharp eye for design and her warm and friendly approach with customers made her a naturally strong saleswoman. But Este was still a young girl and had no idea yet how valuable these skills would be to her life's work. It was not until 1924, during World War I, that Este had a fateful encounter with her greatest mentor. When this gentleman entered Este's life, he did more than just take the young girl's interests and goals seriously. He held the key, or rather, the key ingredients, to Estée's success. Estée had ambition and drive, and her mentor gave her everything else she needed to change the face of beauty forever. Here's something we're excited to share with you. I finally found a vitamin that makes a difference in how I feel every day. You have to try Ritual Vitamins. I never know what type of vitamins my body needs. So many women can relate to that. Did you know that 95% of women do not get the vitamins and minerals they need on a daily basis? Ritual created a smarter vitamin with the nine essential ingredients women lack most. I had no idea. What changes have you noticed with Ritual? My sleep has improved tremendously, and I feel so energized throughout the day, I'm finally starting to kick my coffee addiction. Ritual's Essential for Women is vegan, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free, and allergen-free, which is great for someone who deals with food allergies like me. And it's made in the USA without synthetic fillers or colorants. I'm excited to try it out. Go to ritual.com women to sign up and learn more. Choose clean ingredients backed by science. Sign up now at ritual.com slash women. Before we get back to Estee Lauder's story, let's touch on another business principle, hiring quality people. Bringing on the wrong person can set your business back months. But hiring the right person can take your company to new heights. We recently brought on a new studio manager, and he's been so helpful with keeping us all organized and on schedule, since we all work on multiple podcasts now. Here's a tip. Instead of posting on job boards, find the person who will help you grow your business with LinkedIn. LinkedIn Jobs matches people to your role based on who they really are, their skills, interests, and even how open they are to new opportunities. This way, your job gets seen by more of the right people. Plus, 70% of the workforce is already there. That's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. Hurry to linkedin.com slash women and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash women to get $50 off your first job post. LinkedIn.com slash women. Terms and conditions apply. Now let's get back to the story. In the summer of 1924, most of Europe was caught up in the crossfires of World War I, and Estée's uncle, John Schatz, fled Vienna to take up residence at his sister's home in Queens. John was a chemist who spent a lot of his career studying skin care and working on creams that kept skin clean, moisturized, and looking young. He developed a variety of early cosmetic products, including freckle removers, muscle-building cream, and mustache wax. To Estée, there could not have been a single more exciting person to turn up on her doorstep. Estée later wrote about her uncle's arrival, saying, quote, 
He captured my imagination and interest as no one else ever had. He understood me. What's more, he produced miracles, end quote. The miracles she referred to were the effects that his products had on her skin. As a teenager, she started to earn a reputation for having glowing skin. The creams worked by creating a barrier between air and skin to prevent the loss of moisture, which is a major cause of wrinkles. Estée would later improve upon his formula to build a beauty empire. She was sure that these products could improve a woman's overall complexion and her self-confidence. She felt that the key to every woman's beauty was excellent skin care, and that a little bit of effort and the right products could make all the difference. At the age of 16, working alongside her uncle in his makeshift laboratory, it had already become clear to Estée what she wanted to do with her life. She wanted to create products for women that made them feel special and beautiful. She remembered, quote, That is what I'd like to do. Touch people's faces, no matter who they were. Touch them and make them pretty. My future was being written in a jar of snow cream. End quote. She learned everything she could from her Uncle John and later said of him, quote, Do you know what it means for a young girl to suddenly have someone take their dreams quite seriously? Teach her secrets? End quote. Este was eager to share the benefits of her products with the world. As a teenager in the mid-1920s, she attended Newtown High School, where she started bringing in samples from her uncle's lab for the other girls in class. She applied the creams to her classmates' faces, and they were impressed with how soft and bright the creams made their skin look and feel. She created a band of loyal customers. Estée once recalled, quote, If someone had a slight redness just under her nose that was sure to emerge into a sensitive blemish the next day, she'd come to visit. End quote. Uncle John's creams were so effective, the young girls saw results overnight. Estée became someone that her peers could turn to, knowing that she not only understood their problems, but had solutions for them. She started packaging the cream in jars and calling it Super Rich All-Purpose Cream. Lauder once commented that she likely gave away gallons of it during high school. Her cream gained popularity, largely because her friends were singing its praises around school. Even as a teenager, Estée could see the value of this early word-of-mouth advertising and would later come to rely on this business principle as a key marketing tool. The small network of loyal customers at Newton High School was just a small taste of how far word could travel and how successful Estée would become. Robert Grayson wrote in Estée Lauder, businesswoman and cosmetics pioneer, that, quote, she felt sharing her vision of beauty with women and helping them achieve it was honorable, and she wanted to do it for the rest of her life, end quote. As she prepared for graduation, she had a definite and clear goal for what she wanted to do. After Estée graduated from high school, she met another important man, Joseph Lauder. As the story goes, Estée was sitting on the front porch swing of her parents' vacation cottage near Lake Mohegan, just outside of New York City. Joseph happened to pass by, and when he saw her, he called out, Hello, Blondie! Estée was raised by strict, conservative parents, so she didn't even answer the bold young man. Her father would not be pleased if he found her talking to a boy without a proper introduction. 
Luckily for the two of them, a week later, family friends did introduce Joseph to Estée. Despite being six years apart, Estée being 19 and Joseph in his mid-twenties, the couple began dating in 1927. Estée felt adored by Joseph and said that she loved how he made her feel like a grown-up. They dated for three years and married on January 15, 1930, Estée at the age of 22 and Joseph 28. The couple then moved to Manhattan, a longtime dream of Estée's. There, she spent countless hours in her kitchen, dreaming up new cosmetics products. She experimented with fragrances and was constantly on the lookout for new, never-before-seen ways to improve skincare. But she kept her recipes and experiments a secret, always wary of her competition or anyone who might steal her ideas. She once said, To sell a cream, you sold a dream in the early days referring to the range of possibilities women hope to achieve with their beauty product purchases. Meanwhile, Estée was buying into her own American dream. On March 19, 1933, Estée and Joseph welcomed their first son, Leonard, into their lives. But Estée wasn't just growing her family. She also made serious steps towards growing her business. She was determined to build a brand that would occupy the lavish department stores that she idolized as a teenager. Starting a business venture as a woman in the early 1900s posed a number of challenges. Women did not have good access to business education or funding of any kind, which made it harder for them to become entrepreneurs. The cosmetics industry, however, was built almost entirely by women. Upfront costs for a cosmetic startup were low, and there was a steady demand for beauty products. Because the industry was just developing, there was a lot of opportunity for women to introduce new and innovative beauty lines to the market. The matter of advertising was a bit trickier. The world of advertising was not a very welcoming place for female entrepreneurs. Women did not have access to mainstream advertising methods and had a harder time convincing male-dominated store owners to stock their products. So these women found inventive ways around these limitations, selling door-to-door, filling orders by mail, and setting up sales counters in salons. Estée got creative with her guerrilla marketing approaches and expanded her word-of-mouth referral network. Even the startup companies of today are always on the lookout to find inventive ways to get word out about their services and build their customer base. Lyft, the rideshare car service, hit the streets in 2012 with giant pink fur mustaches affixed to the front of their cars. The app-based service found that this was a great way to get the attention of their potential customers. Then they offered rewards and promotions to users who shared the service with their friends. Estée did the same thing. She found ways to get the attention of those she believed would be interested in her products, and then she offered them samples and special treatment in order to encourage positive word-of-mouth advertising. It was common for housewives and mothers in the 1930s to have their hair done in professional salons, and Estée was no exception. She had regular appointments at House of Ash Blondes, where she started drumming up clients for her very own startup. Florence Morris, who ran the House of Ash Blonde Salon, once asked her how she kept her skin so fresh, and Estée was happy to share her secret. 
At her next appointment, she brought cleansing oil, a cream pack, her signature super-rich all-purpose cream, skin lotion, face powder, and lipstick she had developed. Estee insisted that Florence give her just five minutes to demonstrate how to use the products, and Florence was so impressed by her own transformation that she gave Estee a job. Florence soon asked her to sell her products at another salon location in New York City. Estee rented the counter space at this second salon and set up shop, keeping all the remaining profits. And so came to be the very first Estee Lauder cosmetics counter. Estee ran her counter with incredible care. She always made a point to remember personal details about the women she sold to, asking them about their children, bonding with them, and creating genuine relationships with the hope that they would always return to her counter first. Estee's commitment to excellence was as evident at her cosmetics counter as it was in her own kitchen, where she continued making new products. At night, after a long day of sales, she would return to her kitchen where she toiled away over new lipsticks, face powders, and creams. One of these early products was a particular shade of red lipstick that she named Duchess Crimson. It is said to have perfectly complemented white teeth and became an early bestseller. Using the word Duchess in the name was a smart branding technique that conveyed the elegance of royalty. Estee worked hard to create an image that established the luxury brand as high-end, and she succeeded, even in the face of the Great Depression, or quite possibly because of it. Estee launched her business during one of the worst financial crises in American history. Despite what one may think, economic downswings are historically always good for the cosmetics industry. Larry Elliott of The Guardian calls this the lipstick effect, writing that in the four years from 1929 to 1933, industrial production in the U.S. halved, but sales of cosmetics rose. As big-ticket items like mortgages and cars become unaffordable during recessions, smaller luxury items like cosmetics see a surge in popularity. Employees of the beauty company Mary Kay saw the same trend during the recession in 2008, which was a record year for sales. Elliot also notes, Consumers simply trade down to cheaper items to cheer themselves up. What's more, this effect has held good in recessions of the past and in countries with different cultural traditions. Makeup and beauty products made Estee happy, and the economic climate made it easy for Estee to share that happiness with others. In fact, she was famous for having a very particular approach toward sharing her product with new customers. She was known to stop women on the streets, in elevators, and in hallways, and casually strike up conversation with them. She would first offer the woman a kind and specific compliment, perhaps about the color of her blouse or a piece of jewelry she was wearing, and then found a way to bring up skincare. Biographer Grayson wrote, Lauder was so knowledgeable about skin issues, she could tell what type of problems a person had at a glance, and she usually had a solution. She was so confident in her products and so personable and charming that she was hard to say no to. Because Estee did not have the means to pay for expensive print advertisements, she had to be more innovative. She started what came to be known as her Tell a Woman campaign, which capitalized on word-of-mouth advertising. 
this business principle of word-of-mouth advertising through a referral network goes hand-in-hand with another business principle called reciprocity and influence marketing. Along with putting a personal touch, literally, on all of her interactions with new customers, Estée was also still giving her products away for free. She often offered small samples of her creams and lipsticks to new patrons who were not yet ready to buy. And for those who were ready to buy, she often included a small thank-you gift for their business, usually a sampling of a new product. Her biographer wrote that this was a simple yet ingenious advertising strategy. It took no elaborate planning, but was extremely effective. The idea, in Estée's mind, was that she was so confident in her product that she was sure anyone who tried it once would be back for more. This principle of reciprocity and influence marketing, which is still seen as a valuable marketing technique today, actually has its roots in psychology. Dan Ariely, a behavioral economist at Duke University, told The Atlantic, Reciprocity is a very, very strong instinct. If somebody does something for you, you really feel a rather surprisingly strong obligation to do something back for them. In business, the act of providing a free sample or a gift positively influences the customer's opinion of the brand by making them feel singled out and special. This increases their interest in the product and the likelihood that they'll make a purchase. There may be no other company more associated with free samples than Costco, the nationwide wholesale store. The Atlantic's Joe Pinsker looks at the company's successful strategy in his article, The Psychology Behind Costco's Free Samples. Pinsker notes that the short-term spike in sales isn't the only effect of product sampling that matters. It's great for making customers loyal to stores and brands over longer periods of time. And Costco has the numbers to back up their strategy. In 2014, Costco pizza samples boosted frozen pizza sales by 600%. Estee's free samples helped her sales expand too, although not quite as much as Costco. Soon, more and more salons were reaching out to Estee, asking her to set up cosmetics counters with them. But setting up each new counter was very time-consuming, and Estee could not be in all of them at once, despite her desire to run them all herself. Her high standards and commitment to excellence made it hard for her to leave the new counters in the hands of new young saleswomen. But she managed to handpick a select few who met her requirements. With that done, new cosmetics counters carrying her products were established throughout New York. She was so focused on her new counters and her growing startup that her marriage began to suffer. One account of her life suggests that Estée was dissatisfied with the restricted social status her marriage to Joseph gave her. She wanted to climb the social rankings and enter the realm of high society to help sell the image of her luxury brand. Most other accounts, however, suggest that Estée was just too busy to pay much attention to things going on at home. As her business took off, she started to outshine Joseph, who was working as a small business investor. It created a rift in their marriage. The couple divorced in 1939, but 31-year-old Estée said later that she knew right away it was a mistake. She found the dating scene of New York in the early 1940s tedious and unpleasant. It did not end up affording her any elevated social status after all, 
and she missed her loving husband very much. Decades later, Estée is quoted as saying, quote, I did not know how to be Mrs. Joseph Lauder and Estée Lauder at the same time, end quote. Estée was experiencing a common struggle for work-life balance that many women in business face, especially those in leadership roles. CEO of Yahoo, Marissa Meyer, came under heavy scrutiny when she announced that she was pregnant with twins, raising questions about whether or not working women can have it all, as they say. Belinda Luscombe of Time detailed the criticism of Meyer on both sides of the argument in her article, What Marissa Meyer Teaches Us About Mothers and Leadership. Meyer only took a short maternity leave after having her first child. This sparked criticism that she was a poor role model for other working mothers, and possibly a bad mother herself for not staying home with her newborn longer. The other side of the debate argued that it was irresponsible for Meyer to take the CEO position in the first place when she knew she would need to take time off at such a critical moment for the company. Marissa openly took advantage of her executive privileges, installing an office nursery, She even acknowledged on Twitter that her position provided benefits that many other moms were not lucky enough to enjoy. And having it all isn't just good for mothers, it's good for the companies they work for. Here's Jill Kirschenbaum, editor-in-chief of Working Mother magazine, discussing a study done on companies that provided benefits like office nurseries and flexible schedules. That has an impact on, in terms of in turnover, employee loyalty, um, happier employees. We have a study this year out from Cornell University that makes a direct connection between the companies that make the 100 best list and their market cap. So a company that makes the list can see an increased market cap of as much as a billion dollars. Allowing for work-life balance and having it all is good for businesses, too. For a stay... Work-life balance meant repairing her relationship with her husband. When her son Leonard became ill with the mumps, Estée called Joseph right away. Together, the worried parents nursed Leonard back to health. Their reunion sparked old feelings, and they realized they were meant to be together. In 1942, at the age of 34, Estée remarried Joseph. She knew if she wanted things to be different this time around, it would be up to her to make room for both business and family in her life. Their second marriage led to a lifelong commitment and joint business venture. Joseph quit his job to join forces with his wife. Her husband took over management of the production factories and finances, while Estée continued to spearhead sales and marketing. The partnership suited them well, and in 1944, they welcomed their second son, Ronald. But a new baby couldn't slow 36-year-old Estée down. In fact, nothing could slow Estée down. Driven by her passion and unwavering vision, and with an amazing partner by her side, Estée Lauder became a force of nature. Here's something we want to share with you. If you're looking for an online university that's changing lives by changing higher education, you need to check out Western Governors University. WGU is nonprofit and affordable, about half the cost of most other online universities, so you can graduate with far less debt or none at all. 
and its innovative, competency-based learning model was designed for the busy lives of adults, so you can study anywhere, anytime your schedule allows. Skip the material you already know and focus on learning what you don't. The faster you demonstrate what you know, the faster you finish. WGU offers bachelor's and master's degrees in business, IT, teaching, and nursing. Get your $65 application fee waived at wgu.edu slash greatwomen. That's wgu.edu slash greatwomen to learn more and get your $65 application fee waived. wgu.edu slash greatwomen. Now let's get back to the story. In 1946, Estée and Joseph officially went into business, launching the Estée Lauder Cosmetics Company. They bought a small restaurant in Manhattan, which they turned into a lab, where they mixed and baked new products and packaged them for distribution. In these early years, Estée made an important decision about her products. She would never sell them to drugstores. She worked hard at building a luxury brand that would feel prestigious. She didn't want to dilute that image by making her product available just anywhere. Instead, she set her sights on salons and department stores only. The more high-end, the better. But Estée was still establishing the value of her products and needed a way to capture a high-end image for her brand. This is in part a big reason why it was so hard to overcome the first barrier of getting on the shelves of department stores. In 1947, Estée secured counter space at the department store Bonwit Teller. It was her very first foray into stores. But she still had another major hurdle to overcome in getting her products in front of her affluent target market. She wanted to be in the best, most prestigious department stores. She set her sights on Saks Fifth Avenue. In the 1940s, Robert Fisk was the store's cosmetics buyer, meaning he was in charge of what Saks put on their shelves. He wasn't looking to buy anything new. He saw no need to take a risk on a new, unknown brand when he already carried well-liked, established beauty lines. He did not believe Estée when she said there was great demand for her products. The answer was no. But that was not a word Estée liked to hear. In the days following, she was scheduled to speak at a charity luncheon at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. When she arrived, she brought with her 80 of her own lipsticks to be donated as table gifts. The lipsticks came in small metal cases, and the luncheon attendees were intrigued by the unusual packaging and color. When the event was over, Estée encouraged the guests to ask for her products at Saks. She, of course, knew they wouldn't find any there. Not yet, anyway. The women flocked to the department store in hopes of purchasing the lipstick for themselves. Fisk recalled that there was, quote, a line of people across Park Avenue and across 50th Street into Saks asking for these lipsticks, one after another. This convinced us that there was a demand for the Lauder product, end quote. Saks had to turn away the disappointed customers, and Estée had proven her point. Fisk, in turn, bought $800 worth of her products, which would be worth about $12,000 today. That first $800 order sold out in just two days. 
Finally earning a place at the Saks Fifth Avenue cosmetics counter was an incredible achievement for Estee. She said of the accomplishment, quote, Breaking that first mammoth barrier was the single most exciting moment I have ever known. End quote. Estee was constantly looking to expand. In 1950, when she was 42, she turned her attention to Neiman Marcus, which was located in Dallas. She was so committed to getting her product on new department store shelves that she overcame her fear of flying to meet with the president of Neiman Marcus, Stanley Marcus, in person. She had no appointment, but went to the store every day until Stanley Marcus would meet with her. Not wanting to waste any time, she gave him her direct and succinct sales pitch, saying, quote, I'm Estee Lauder, and I have the most wonderful beauty products in the world, and they must be in your store, end quote. He was so impressed with her persistence that even though he was already carrying similar products, he was willing to consider it. He asked her when she could have her products shipped to Dallas. He was shocked to discover she'd brought them in tow. He said, quote, Well, by God, she had it all with her. She had brought a big bag filled with merchandise, and the very next day she set it up and was in business at Neiman Marcus. End quote. Neiman Marcus is still one of the most prestigious department stores in the country. This was a major break for Estee as a person and as a company. Now that Estee had counter space, she began to utilize all of the important lessons about sales and merchandising that she had learned as a young girl in her father's shop. Estee was committed to bringing her customers a relaxing, spa-like experience by offering them a quick three-minute makeover, which she mastered. In order to do so, every detail had to be just right. She used the business principle of collecting and implementing market research. Estee studied the habits of her prospective customers and catered to their every whim, even subconscious ones. Estee stood at the entrance of department stores and studied customer foot traffic patterns. When she discovered that more customers had a tendency to veer right rather than left when they entered a store, she decided to keep her counters as close to the right of the entrance as possible. Once she was sure to be seen, she wanted her products to look elegant and enticing. She ordered samplings of different jars of all colors and sizes and carried them with her. When she ate at a fancy restaurant or visited a friend's home, she would always excuse herself to the restroom. Her biographer, Grayson, wrote, There, she would take out the bottles from her purse and see how they looked in the room. Lauder analyzed how each bottle complemented or clashed with the various wallpapers, fixtures, and tiles. She finally decided on jars that were a variety of shapes, all in what she called quote, a fragile pale turquoise that was memorable, end quote. This color came to be known as Estee Blue, and it was sure to match any bathroom in America. Her attention to detail was impeccable, and she believed it resulted in the very best designs. Estee's process shows two business principles that go hand in hand. Estee used merchandising in tandem with branding, which helps to create an image or a style that differentiates your product from others like it. The Apple Store similarly merged merchandising and branding when they made their new stores as sleek and simple as their product designs. 
Once she'd captured their attention, the most important task was to provide outstanding service with an undeniable product. It all came back to everything she learned watching Fanny and Frida as a young girl. Estée knew the customer experience had to be nothing short of outstanding if she wanted to sell to upscale shoppers. She already believed in her products. She just needed a team she could believe in as well. The business principle of staff development became a very important part of the hiring process. Young women who wanted to sell Estée Lauder had to meet her extremely particular standards. Estée was a perfectionist. And she expected a lot from the people, from her products, from her people, and from herself. She wanted young women who were refined and poised, who could sell without being pushy, and were comfortable encouraging customers to try the products out right there at the counter. Saleswomen were to be attentive. She didn't want any T and T ladies, that is, girls who spent too much time on the telephone or in the toilet. She handpicked her staff and groomed them herself. She spent the first week at every counter she opened in order to get things up and running to par. Another company with a strong staff development program is Amazon, which provides a month-long training and leadership program before hiring new employees. The idea is to bond employees and mold them to Amazon standards. Teal Pennebaker, Amazon's corporate communications manager, said, "Quote: We're a company of pioneers." We seek out people who want to make bold bets, take ownership, and get their energy from inventing on behalf of customers. End quote. Estee also wanted enthusiastic saleswomen who could share their genuine passion for the products with new customers. When she was away, she still worried about the quality of her cosmetics counters, so she hired what she called detail people to act as secret shoppers and report back to her on how well the counters were running. More counters opened as Estée trekked all across the country, meeting at every department store she could around the country. Finally, Estée was satisfied with her company's reach, and she could look to the future. She now had the freedom to develop exciting, innovative products. Here's Estée's biographer, Lee Israel, on Estée's next move. The first very impactful, enormously successful product was something called Youth Do, which probably everyone has forgotten. But it was a post-war phenomenon, and it had the impact and of a, the impact of a brass band, and uh, and it was hugely successful. Nothing subtle about it, but it's what the, the American woman wanted. In the 1950s, perfumes were often given as gifts and worn only for special occasions. They were expensive and fancy, often French, and were meant to be treasured and used sparingly. But Estée wanted to change the way women felt about fragrances. She didn't think they needed to wait to receive perfumes as birthday or anniversary gifts. Lauder said of her new product, "Women still like to feel beautiful, pampered, and loved, and that is what Youth Do is all about." Initially introduced as a more accessible bath oil that doubled as a perfume, Youth Do contained rose, jasmine, and lavender. It hit the market in 1953 and was an instant success. It catapulted 45-year-old Estée Lauder's company from a successful beauty brand to a multi-million-dollar business. Estée considered all of the challenges that came with selling everyday perfumes when she designed Youth Do. Most perfumes evaporated quickly, 
But Youth Do had a time-release formula, giving it a lasting effect. Youth Do initially cost $5 a bottle, about $52 today. Even though this was a steep investment for some, Youth Do was about five times cheaper than its competitors. Keeping in step with her brand's openness to offer customers demonstrations and samples, Youth Do was uniquely sold without a seal on the package, so customers could try it out before buying. Estee recommended that women dab a bit of the bath oil on their wrists as an all-day perfume, and this helped to popularize the idea of an everyday fragrance. This innovation transformed the beauty industry's approach to scented products. The product was first introduced as a giveaway with any purchase from an Estee Lauder counter. The scent was spritzed onto blotters or other paper samples so women could experience the scent without committing to it just yet. But once women tried it, they were happy to spend their money on the bath oil. At one Neiman Marcus counter, sales of Estee Lauder products jumped from $200 a week to $5,000 almost overnight. By the mid-1950s, Youth Do accounted for about 80% of the company's annual sales. Estee expanded the Youth Do line, creating Youth Do scented deodorant, hand lotions, and eventually made it into a proper perfume. And Estee had more in store for her brand. She introduced many new, exciting changes to Estee Lauder Cosmetics Company throughout the 50s. In 1958, Estee's son Leonard officially joined the company at the age of 25. As a teenager, he was always ready to offer a helping hand when an order needed to be filled, but now he could take on a larger role. It was his idea to bring Estee Lauder to Europe. Estee agreed, and together they set their sights overseas. In the 1960s, while Estee was in her 50s, she made an attempt to get her perfume on the shelves of a French department store called Galerie Lafayette. France had been leading the market in perfumes, and the department store buyers felt there would be little to no interest in an American scent. But Estée was persistent and was not about to take no for an answer. Once again, her keen sense of strategic networking came into play. Estée befriended one of the sales clerks at Galerie Lafayette, socializing with her at the counter and earning her good graces. She began to tell the saleswoman about her youth due perfume, and when she took out her bottle to offer the woman a sample spritz, there was an accident. Or at least what looked like an accident. Estée spilled a strategic amount of the perfume on the floor of the busy department store. The scent of the perfume wafted across the cosmetics department, and soon the shoppers were asking where they could buy it. When they discovered the store did not carry youth do, word of their disappointment traveled fast. The cosmetics buyer who had refused to meet with Estée in the first place realized her product was indeed appealing to French customers. Soon after, the French department store was also carrying the American perfume and bath oil. Profits from youth do gave the company a bit of a nest egg to invest in advertising. Estee introduced the marketing concept of the Estee Lauder Woman, a single model that would appear in every Estee Lauder ad. This woman was not a typical movie star and was chosen selectively by Estee. She wanted a woman who was refined and could convey the same image of elegance and class that her products did. Starting in 1962, these ads have been featured in high-end magazines like Vogue and The New Yorker. 
The most famous Estee Lauder models were Karen Graham, whose face was used during the 1970s, and Elizabeth Hurley, who was the proud face of Estee Lauder throughout the 90s. The 1960s brought more change to the Estee Lauder brand. Her son Leonard realized that there was a growing market for fuss-free beauty products. He and his mother sensed that just as there was a demand for fragrance, there might have been just as much demand for fragrance-free products. The women's liberation movement sparked a new school of thought. Women wanted to join the workforce and spend less time on trivial beauty routines to fit the standard of the ideal woman. Leonard also felt that there was another underserved market, women with sensitive skin. So he spearheaded a new line that focused on low-maintenance, no-nonsense skincare. Leonard and Estee agreed that the products should be allergy-tested so they could emphasize its value to shoppers with sensitivities. Fashionably packaged, hypoallergenic products did not yet exist, and Estee Lauder was eager to meet that need. The research and development that went into this new product was ultimately the business principle that eventually made it a success. The Lauders all brainstormed on what to call the new line. On a trip to Paris, 35-year-old Leonard and his wife Evelyn saw the name Clinique Esthétique and loved it. And so the line was named. Clinique was launched in September of 1968. Ingredients were kept under tight wraps due to the competitive nature of the cosmetics industry, which Estée described in her memoir, Estée, a Success Story. She wrote, quote, Our competitors spent more time trying to scoop out new ideas than developing new ideas of their own, end quote. So ingredients were tested and given secret codes to avoid corporate spies. If someone stole a new product in development, they wouldn't find a usable recipe on the label. Instead, there would be a list of codes like BHR13 or 007. Estee also never gave the manufacturing plants her entire recipe. When the product was about 98% complete, someone from the Lauder family would arrive with the final ingredient to finish the mix. These last key ingredients were always family secrets. This may seem like overkill, but Estee's biggest competitor, Charles Revson of Revlon, was known for his sophisticated spying equipment. Estee wrote in her memoir, quote, I heard he had a spectroscope to analyze the colors in competitors' products. He would have not only our colors analyzed, but fragrances and containers as well, end quote. Estee went on to add, quote, It's irritating to have competitors hot on your heels, but it's also flattering and stimulating. End quote. Estee also said that though he succeeded at copying them quite often, they did retaliate once. They stole some of his ad copy, using phrases like biologically correct when they marketed Clinique. Leonard identified a unique niche market that was underserved, Another underlying business principle that helped Clinique succeed. They hired highly trained consultants who wore white lab coats and chatted with customers about their needs in order to sell them the product that best suited them. Leonard and Estee decided to release the products as their very own brand, selling them at their own separate counter. They chose to do this for several reasons. They wanted to make sure customers knew that Clinique was new and innovative. 
they also did not want to suggest that Estee Lauder products might cause any allergic reactions, and Leonard felt a little friendly competition would be healthy for both brands. Stores were reluctant to carry hypoallergenic beauty products, so it did take some time before Clinique caught on. About four years, actually, before the beauty line turned a profit. But in 1985, less than 20 years after launch, Clinique's annual sales reached $200 million. Estee Lauder continued to innovate and introduce new beauty products well into the 90s. A second signature perfume called Estee was released in 1968, and in 1990, Origins debuted as an ecologically friendly brand aimed at young people. Clinique is one example of an important business principle that made Estee Lauder a leading giant in the cosmetics industry. The business principle of participating in emerging business trends helped keep Estee Lauder relevant to new markets and kept her products accessible in shifting economies. Forbes highlighted the company's ability to move successfully into the digital space, making products available to online shoppers at 120 e-commerce sites. Taking advantage of other online trends, in 2015, Estee Lauder launched a mobile app called Clinique Skincare and Makeup Consultant, which offers skin tips based on the current weather in your area. Estee never stopped developing and growing her brand. Her career and social status grew along with the number of products she had helped bring to department store shelves. Israel puts Estee in a special class of entrepreneurs, along with Helena Rubinstein and Elizabeth Arden. She was the last of a breed. There were extraordinary personalities uh, in, in, in this in last century in the beauty business because uh, each of them sort of became the apotheosis of the dream they were selling. A true example of the American dream, her hard work and dedication raised her social status and landed her at the forefront of her self-made beauty empire. She became a fashion icon, famous for hosting elegant and elaborate parties. She wrote in her memoir, quote, Through business, I have met an infinite variety of fascinating people, and I have been entertained royally by so many, I like to respond in kind, end quote. She socialized among celebrities, politicians, and even royalty, and she supported a number of charities that supported the arts, as well as medical research programs. She received the French Legion of Honor and the Golden Key to the City of Paris. She stepped back a bit both from her company and from the public eye in 1983, when her beloved husband Joseph died. She remained completely devoted to her two sons, their wives, and her grandchildren, and it was a great point of pride that they all joined the family business. It meant a great deal to her to see her legacy carried on in children and grandchildren, and she truly believed only a Lauder could offer the care and commitment that the company required. Estee Lauder passed away in 2004 at the age of 96, but her brand still upholds Estee's signature standards of luxury and excellence. Before she passed away, she was quoted as saying, If you love to work and you have a goal, you'll get there. I didn't get there by wishing for it or hoping for it or dreaming about it. I got there by working for it. And the proof of her hard work remains as stores in over 150 countries still carry her beauty lines. 
Estee Lauder saleswomen continue to touch the lives and faces of women all over the world. Thanks for listening to Great Women of Business. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Great Women of Business, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. In the meantime, go break some glass ceilings. Great Women of Business is produced by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. Sound design by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Carly Madden, Maggie Admire, and Paul Mahler. Great Women of Business is written by Lisa Fry and stars Molly Brandenburg and Vanessa Richardson. Here's something we hope you'll enjoy. By the Book from Panoply is half reality show, half self-help podcast, and one wild social experiment. By the Book isn't a podcast podcast, but we do recommend it. Each episode has comedian Jolenta Greenberg and her skeptical friend Kristen Meinzer live according to a different self-help book, following all the rules down to the letter. Whether they're home, at work, or running errands, they record themselves to give listeners a glimpse into how the books are improving their lives or not. Whether it's The Secret, The Five Love Languages, or Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, you'll laugh or cry or both. But you'll know you're not alone on your self-improvement journey. Subscribe to Buy the Book in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. WGU is an affordable online university that's changing lives by changing higher education. They offer degrees in business, IT, teaching, and nursing, and their innovative model was designed for the lives of busy adults. Study anywhere, anytime your schedule allows. You'll get personalized one-to-one faculty mentors from day one. Get your $65 application fee waived at wgu.edu slash greatwomen.